if they sound like a psychopath, they look like a psychopath, and they've got the brain of a psychopath, then let's assume that they are a psychopath and not allow them to run countries. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley, and I've got Ilan Martin in the studio with me. Today, we are pleased to be interviewing Dr. Clive Body. Clive is, let me open up your bio here, Clive. You're Associate Professor in the Faculty of Business, I believe, at Anglia Ruskin University. And you have a variety of research interests, including corporate psychopathy. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, yeah, the Faculty of Business and Law, sorry. And this is an, a topic that's interested me in, well, probably for the last 15, 16 years, probably since Paul Babiak and Robert Hare published their book, Snakes in Suits, maybe a bit before that. Uh, first, to start out with, could you tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got interested in this topic in particular? Uh, yeah, I started with this topic uh, for my DBA, Doctor of Business Administration degree, uh, which I did back at Curtin University in Australia in 2009-ish and before that. Um, and I read a, a small piece in Harvard Business Review, which talked about executive psychopaths. And I realized that I, I had worked with somebody who would score highly on some of those characteristics. Uh, and therefore, I adopted it as, as a piece of uh, doctoral research and been doing it ever since, basically. Well, I had a, an interesting conversation with someone I know recently who works in, who's worked in HR for decades. And I've heard some, well, depending on who you talk to, whether it's um, employees or just people on the street or people who work on HR, sometimes you get the impression that they say like, oh, well, everyone at the, you know, all the CEOs are psychopaths or, or you know, et cetera, or in, in business. I, I wonder if you, if there's any research done to kind of either tone that down a bit, or is it like, how prevalent is psychopathy in the workplace? Do we have any idea of what's really going on there? Well, roughly the 0 0.6 to 1.2 of the adult population. Mm -hmm. um, the theory is the higher up you go, the more of them there are in organizations because they seek money, power, and control over other people. Um, so mm -hmm. they might be attracted to some sectors of the economy more than others. So, for example, if corporate banking gives you the opportunity for more money, power, and control, then you might go into that sector rather than the caring professions, which are less yeah. well-paid, like nursing or being a beautician or working in a care home, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was uh, Bobby and Hare's work, one of their pieces of research that showed that um, around 3.9% of the top of organizations have psychopaths, psychopathic people in them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's probably 1% at the bottom in line with, you know, the adult population figures. Yeah. So maybe like four times as four times as prevalent in, in those top positions, you might say, give or take. Yes. I mean, there's, there's very little research on this, on, on the incidence yeah. rates or, or the way they spread through organizations, but what research there is does support that view, yeah. Hmm. 
Well, I was looking through your papers. You've you've you're you've got many papers published, um, a lot of them on on this topic. And so the other day, I was just going through some of them and seeing what I could find. The ones that were um, available, or just reading the abstracts if they weren't, um, if the, you know, the full versions weren't available, um, just online. And in one of these articles. Um, I don't have the title with me, but I'll, this was the first paper or the, the first paragraph that you wrote with uh, with your co-author. Um, no matter which sector organizations occupy, a generic factor that middle managers identify as being critical to success is effective leadership. Notwithstanding, Hogan puts the base level of ineffective leadership at around 65%. This is to the extent that up to 70% of employees would take a pay cut if their immediate superior was fired. Moreover, between 60 and 70% of 75% of employees report that the worst part of their job is dealing with their superior, who is thus the main influence on employee job satisfaction. So this actually gets into another topic that I wanted to get into is kind of the, the how this intersects with job satisfaction. So is this, is this just, um, well, maybe you could tease this out. How much of this is um, like a really toxic, like psychopathic boss and how much is, of it is just incompetence? And do we have any idea why why this situation obtains like how does this how does this develop to to create the situation where so many people are just totally dissatisfied with their job their superior to the extent that they'd be willing to take a pay cut if they got fired uh yeah i'm quoting robert hogan's work there which who's a very good writer on on leadership you may know him already um yeah he, he's not differentiating that between psychopathic leadership and inept leadership and indeed when you work for inept people it does feel like a toxic situation, but the the, the key difference is there's no malevolence behind their um, uh, stupid decisions, if that's the right way of saying it. Whereas with a toxic leader or a psychopathic leader, there is self-interested um, malevolence behind it. So that the, and in any work situation, your boss sets the culture, the tone, the ethics of the organisation that's most um, immediate to you and therefore they have a huge influence on whether you you like your job or not mm -hmm. and and that's where i think robert ergen's figures come yeah. from um because your boss is such an important yeah. influence on on your work life and if you have a good boss it's great and you just get on with it and if you don't then it becomes a constant struggle to to try and do your job properly and to try to compensate for him or her not doing their job properly as well so you end up working um more than one job because typically they're they've got there because they're prepared to lie or they've fraudulently claimed competencies and qualifications that they don't really have and therefore when they get appointed they can't really do the job they've been appointed to and somebody else has to do it typically right. those below them who then have the burden of doing more than one job. Mm -hmm. It no, closely I... links mm -hmm. the job satisfaction, as, as you've um, hinted, right? Uh, because the, because you know the the influence of the leader has such a big influence on uh, on how happy or otherwise you are in your work environment. So we've done. I did some stuff with uh, Ross Taplin who's a professor of statistics, looking at the influence of job satisfaction on employee, of, uh, sorry, psychopathy on job satisfaction. And we found there's a whole variety of 
routes whereby lessened lower levels of job satisfaction occur. So there's things like uh, verbal abuse, bullying, ridicule, um, sarcasm in the workplace. Um, so there's lots of indirect ways they affect job satisfaction, but there's there's also a direct way as well from from their personal behaviour directly to the employee concerned. Um, and in one of the bullying papers that we reanalyzed, we realized that from the some of the qualitative research we did, the scale we used in the bullying paper was inadequate to capture the extent and ferocity and regularity of the bullying that can occur under a corporate psychopath. And statisticians would tend to see the... Um, the extreme cases as outliers, which are not necessarily representative of what psychopaths do. But I beg to differ. These more extreme cases where you get multiple bullying behavior every day from the same person, um, sometimes in an open office so everybody can see it, um, it's just so extreme that it, it, it goes beyond the boundaries of most of the ways we try and measure these things. So we came to the conclusion that you have to measure that um, in, in just in sheer numerical way. How many times a, a day did you see this person uh, bullying people? And then it, it goes uh, through the roof when you do that. Well, when so when you look at this this picture, I mean that you've just that you've painted for us just very briefly of of a workplace environment with a superior or a boss like this. I mean, it it really for me. It really exposes like a certain view for to as being just not true. So there's this view, and I know you've written about this too, that um, that oh well, psych psychopathic traits can be an advantage in the in the workplace, and and well, there there it, it might be a, it might be a good thing in certain ways. What? How do you see that? Do you see? Do you see any advantage whatsoever, or is it, or is this kind of like just a complete misreading of the situation that some people have? Oh, I think the some psychologists have equated uh, psychopathy with success, but you have to remember that psychologists look at things from an individual point of view. So they they might say, "Does being good looking help your career prospects? Does being tall?" help your career prospects, mm. and they'll probably find that it does. And so the way they've approached this is they've said, okay, does having psychopathic traits affect your career progress? And it does. It helps you get along, uh, get ahead because of all these characteristics they have, like the willingness to lie and their lack of emotional responsiveness, which, which um, makes their lying less obvious because they don't have the neuroses and nervous tics and uh, emotional reactions that the rest of us have. So when they are telling lies, it looks like they're telling the truth. Um, and so they are able to get ahead in, in that way and, uh, and, and move up the hierarchy. So, what was the original question there? Oh, well, so... So the, well, I'll, 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 no, I'll, I'll go off on, on what you're saying. So there is, when looked at in an individual way, there is that element of ah, success because yes. it, yeah, it is yeah, true, yeah, but yeah. there's a wider picture, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. I look at, I don't, I leave it to psychologists to look at psychopaths themselves and how their mm -hmm. brains work and, 
and and what they think of themselves internally and that kind of thing. I always look at their the implications for wider society, for their colleagues, for the people they work with, for the organisations, for global sustainability, um, because they have no care for any other people apart from themselves because of this lack of emotional connectivity with people. Um, this means that they really don't care about the future or about the, their own children or about their wives or anything like that. So they are uh, disconnected to anything that, that relates to anything but their own levels of satisfaction and, and success. So from a personal point of view, they're successful. I mean, they walk away with millions while, while everybody else gets fired, for example, in an organizational setting. But from a, a wider perspective, then there's no success about it at all for, for anyone else apart from the psychopath um, that's concerned. Right. And so, the, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say psychologists tend to fall in the trap of having this narrow view of what success means for people. And it tends mm -hmm. to be individualistic and materialistic as well. Right. And so, well, this relates to something, I, something I've read in um, the works of Peter Turchin. And he's, he wrote a book called Ultra Society about cooperation. And one of the points he made there and other places too, is that even though in a, you know, in a capitalist environment, it's all about competition, competition between firms and corporations and things like that, and maybe individuals too. When you look at it, a company like a corporation, it's the corporation that's, that's competing with another corporation. And in order to do so, they need to co cooperate within the, corp the corporation or within the business or within the company. So in order to do something as a group, you need that internal cooperation. And so when you look at it just from an individual perspective, like just the just the one psychopath and his success moving up the, the corporate hierarchy, you're not looking at the the actual um, you know, value of the not looking at the the product productivity and the effectiveness and the, the cohesion and cooperation of the the group itself, which is the wider company and the wider workplace. So um th that would seem to me to be the probably a more important way of looking at success is how, how does the actual business get run? How do the people work together? Because even when we're just talking about inept and incompetent superiors, like, like in that, that other paper and that, that other uh, researcher who you quoted, um, when you have 70 or like, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70% of, of your workforce that is totally dissatisfied with their job and with their superior, they're not going to be, you know, giving it a hundred percent, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of disengagement. Uh, um, if you're not happy, then you put less than your best effort into things, and particularly you don't go the extra mile for the organisation, uh, especially if the organisation doesn't reciprocate. Um, right. And we've even found, in the case where there is lots of bullying and abuse and uh, psychopathic management tyranny, in other words. Um, the people will even start to engage in counterproductive work behavior like sabotage, um, deliberately messing the environment, deliberately making mistakes um, as a way of getting back at the organization which has all which has fostered this um, tyrannical and unreasonable leader upon them. 
So that, that it's kind of, in a way, it's a little bit misguided retaliation because you, you're retaliating to the company, but uh, it should be more directed at the leader themselves. But I suppose it's the only avenue that people have to express their dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Well, what can <laughs> what can be done, or what what should be done? What, so I've got a few a few questions here. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start with the one specifically on corporate psychopathy. So I know there are some organizations like you've got you've got one. What's the what's the name of the um, the corporate psychopathy research group that you have? Um, uh, oh, well, it's, it's just a really just a website. Um, oh, it's just a website. Okay. Dot org, I think. Yeah. Okay. Used to be well. Well, I know. I know there are there are a bunch of researchers that look into this. I mean, Paul Babiak is one who wrote Snakes and Suits. Um, I'm wondering if there are any or have been any interventions, like if there are corporations who either hire people or who read read the the academic work, like yours or or Babiak's or anyone else's, and actually try to do something about it. Do you have any any stories or any studies about? Um, Anything that's been attempted to try to take take this into account and do something about it, even just at the hiring stage, um, what can what can companies do? I read one piece in uh, I think it was the Financial Times, but I can't I can't remember exactly. They said the, a, a management consultancy group used a, a psychologist to assess one of their applicants, and he decided that. The the psychologist decided that the person was um, psychopathic to some extent, and so they turned him down. And he ended up going into the financial services sector afterwards. Uh, um, in my own research, we had somebody within a UK charity who was trying to fight a rearguard action against the new CEO who had taken over and uh, was doing. Uh, negative things to the company uh, but ultimately failed in that and he was the last last one to leave so basically in this charity uh, a, a great quote from i think it was him actually he said with the last boss we would have followed him to hell and back with this boss we wouldn't even go to the local we wouldn't even follow him to the local pub it says uh everything you need to know about his leadership qualities but in that in that charity everybody left a hundred percent of people left, and um, even more than that, because the the replacements started to leave as well. As soon as the, so they they sort of went from being a you know really proud of what what they were doing in the charity and what their jobs were and what their roles that were to being totally disenfranchised. What's the right word I'm looking for? Well, Unhappy with what was going on there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And as I said, he, he tried to fight against it by reporting the CEO to the board of governors of the charity. But by that time, the CEO had become golfing buddies with the chairman of the board of governors and had uh, undermined what he thought the guy was going to say so that he wasn't believed in the end. Wow. Well, I'd, I'd like to follow up on something you just said, Clive, because you said that the psychologist did an assessment of a possible employee uh, determined he was uh, he had these negative traits and then this potential employee actually went into the financial services sector 
uh, because some years ago I had, um, and I, I couldn't say where it was or, or who did the analysis, but someone was looking at an application for a job within the financial services industry. I think it was some a company on Wall Street in New York. And the, uh, the assessment of the application was that it actually selected for psychopathic traits. And I, I don't recall reading anything since then, but I was just wondering if, um, if you'd ever uh, come across any information or, or job applications that, that, um, and companies that were actually looking for people who demonstrated a level of, of aggressiveness or, or selfishness or psychopathic traits, um, that you know, maybe intentionally or not in, or unintentionally or maybe unintentionally yeah yeah there, there was one media company in australia once who were quite openly advertising for people with those kind of traits um it was just a small company but more importantly <clears throat> i think um i once published a paper called the global psychopath theory of sorry the corporate psychopath theory of the global financial crisis and it got quite a lot of media attention at the time. And as a result of that, a financial journalist called Basham, I think his name was, uh, was talking to a friend of his who was a corporate banker. And the corporate banker said to the journalist, in my bank, we used a psychopathy measure to bring people in, not to keep them out. <laughs> so presumably they thought that these ultra-competitive, ruthless characteristics would be of benefit to the bank against their competitors but of course these people are out for themselves they're not out for the people that, uh, that employ them and so they'd be equally uh, destructive to the organization within as well and when i when i've looked at feedback to this this theory that there are corporate psychopaths in the financial services sector at first my my academic colleagues were sort of highly dismissive of the whole idea well the whole idea of corporate psychopaths in the first place because the, the parody, paradigmatic view of psychopaths at the time, back in 2005, uh, was that they're all in prison, more or less. So there, right. there was a, you know, the, the two words, the juxtaposition of corporate and psychopath didn't go together. And I used to get papers uh, dismissed within 30 minutes of, of sending them into academic journals. So they can't have read more than the title itself before they got rid of it, sent it back to me. Um, but when you look at the views of financial insiders themselves, it, it's almost like, well, yeah, here's, here's a stupid academic stating the absolutely obvious uh, <laughs> that we're all aware of anyway. So to academics, it was new and startling. To financial insider, it was, yeah, we all know that anyway. What's, what's the big mm -hmm. news? Mm -hmm. um, right. That was quite revealing in itself. Well, so on the Bloomberg site where it was reported, there's uh, 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 probably around between 200 and 300 comments afterwards. And if you read the comments, a lot of them just yeah accept the theory as being uh, highly probable. The theory, a, a given. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I just wanted to follow up that on that uh, point because. Um, Recently, James O'Keefe here in the U.S. We have this uh, this um, 
very intrepid uh, journalist named James O'Keefe, who mm -hmm. was formerly of Project Veritas, and now he's got his OMG News uh, group, where they uh, go undercover and get people in politics, in media, in corporations to say things uh, in, in these off-the-cuff interviews and, and reveal uh, rather insightful um, uh, truths about how things work. So his most recent um, uh, revelation was with an interview uh, with a recruiter for BlackRock and named Serge Valley. And this young guy is basically coming out and saying, you know, yeah, the war in Ukraine is just great for business and uh, we can buy politicians in Washington for $10,000 or, you know, for really cheap. And, and he sounded rather giddy about the way things work uh, and, and the power that his company uh, was able to yield. And I, I thought it was, I mean, it's, it's so revealing on so many levels, of course, that, that, you know, one of the people that recruits for this megalithic corporation, BlackRock, would have such a blasé and matter-of-fact and um, unconscientious approach to these realities. And, uh, of course, it made me think of what BlackRock is, you know, this multi-trillion dollar uh, corporation that wields an extraordinary amount of power globally on other corporations, enforcing uh, the, the these ESG scores, the environmental, social, and governance uh, scores that they're you know imposing on a lot of these uh, other corporations in order to to fit the bill of of fitting into this new corporate paradigm. And so I was wondering if. Um, you know, we're talking about bullies that exist on an individual level uh, within these these corporations. But as you mentioned in one of your talks, you you implied that Enron, when it existed, was itself as a body, as a corporation, a bit of a bully with other corporations. Mm, and so, yeah, and, so. And, and and we see the same dynamic with BlackRock. And so, I'm I'm wondering if. Um, if you have any thoughts or comments on the on the fact that that you know some of these corporations in and of themselves are are you know intrinsically psychopathic and, and bullying. Well, the you know there's the thesis from what is his name, Joel Joel Bakken, is it the corporation? Um, that corporations in their setup, you know, their legal establishment and setup are at best, uh, fundamentally amoral, and at worst, psychopathic in that they they seek profit above all else. Um, but yeah, uh, the leadership, as I said earlier, sets the tone at the top. And when you have the three guys uh, that you mentioned, Enron, when you have the three guys at the top who all have fairly highly developed psychopathic tendencies and characteristics, then the whole place becomes bullying and abusive and it spreads you know from the top down in terms of a total um they had a, a well-developed code of ethics but everybody ignored it because of uh, uh, of the example of the top people ignoring it so mm. all the codes and regulations in the world don't mean anything if if the leaders 
demonstrate that they themselves are taking no notice of it. I mean, right. one of the things that I think comes into play here, and I haven't really um, probably emphasized this enough in my previous papers, it, it, it struck me that someone called Michael Levinson, who developed a self-report psychopathy scale um, the, the measure that he, he used, and, and I, I sometimes use as well. Um, in one of his species he, of research, he, rec he, he reckons that around 23% of males, he doesn't mention females, around 23% of males are sufficiently psychopathic, you know, the sort of mid-range levels, to be problematic for society if they're given the chance to let those characteristics flourish. So if you get a, a series of psychopaths at the top of an organization like Enron, and it recruits that type of person because they're attracted to ruthless, com reckless, competitive, potentially high-paid jobs. Um, then over time, you know, through the attrition cycle, people people who don't like it leave, people who do like it stay. The whole organisation gets more and more psychopathic in its entirety. So I think, and and. The three top people in the German Nazi party in the 20th century were also all diagnosed as psychopaths. Hitler mm -hmm. in 1933, Goering at the Nuremberg war trials, and Hess when he landed in Scotland in 41 to arrange some kind of peace deal with the British. Um, so when you get all, all three of the top people who are highly psychopathic, it has an enormous effect on those below them. And these um, people with much less developed psychopathic traits are just allowed to behave badly and immorally and unethically because there's nothing to stop them. There's no, uh, there's no punishment. There's no restraint right. on that behavior. And indeed, there are probably rewards for that behavior rather than restraints sure. on it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it, it, it becomes systemic. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, I want to tie this into something you said just a bit before by by going back in time a bit. So back, you said that back in like 2005, when you were writing these papers, even the idea of corporate psychopathy kind of turned a lot of people off. No, that's not possible. They're, you know, they're all in prison. Well, I found a few years after that, um, like I, I work for a publishing company that, pu that like an independent publisher that publishes a book called Political Ponderology, which was written by a Polish psychologist um, on... Um, Basically, the thesis in in a in a sentence would be that the totalitarianism of the 20th century was largely a, a result of the presence of psychopaths inspiring and and operating these political movements and or governments or state systems. And so, I went to a couple psychopathy conferences in like I think 2009, 2010. Um, one was an SSSP. Um, conference in, in New Orleans. And so I, I tried to give a bunch of copies of the book out to a, a bunch of researchers. And I found that I, I can't remember the name, so I won't reveal this person, but I was having a conversation with, with one of them. And I said, uh, and I was talking about like, like CIA operatives, like, like assassins or something like that. But, and I said, oh, well, you know, don't, don't you think there's a chance that there are, that there are psychopaths within, you know, the, the like government structures 
don't you think that's a thing? And this this person said to me, oh, you know, no, that's no, they screen out for all that that kind of stuff. Someone like that could never get into into a position of influence, like within the American government or or you know or any any level of the apparent American government, apparently. And I was just like, well, okay, okay, and. And like very little response, um, you know, I talked to a lot of them and, you know, some kind of showed interest, but the idea of political psychopathy I found was, you know, corporate psychopathy had been accepted to a, a degree, but the idea of political psychopathy, that was kind of like way off the charts. But now in the last five years or so, it's finally, it's finally getting some, some recognition kind of like I think corporate psychopathy did. And I haven't read your book yet. Um, a climate of fear, stone cold psychopaths at work, but I was, um, I ordered a copy and I was just looking through the Amazon preview and I noticed that you've got a, a chapter on political psychopathy where from just looking through it, you, you mentioned some of the things you just said about like the top, the top Nazi guys. Like I read, um, Gustav Gilbert's book. He was one of the Nuremberg psychologists that you quote uh, yeah, in there. Yeah, and he, he wrote yeah. a book in 1950 called the psychology of totalitarianism, which unfortunately is out of print. I'm going to, I'm going to try to to uh, do a reprint because it's in the public domain now, but he's got a whole a whole chapter on Goering, for instance. I wrote an article about it's kind of summarizing some of the most what I found to be the most entertaining and and funny bits about Goering's psychopathy because he gives all kinds of stories about his interactions with in in Nuremberg with the other inmates and with all of the doctors and how he'd set everyone against each other and and he was just like a, a total slime ball in, in during this whole time and. And so Gilbert concluded that yes, psychopathy played an important nuclei. They, they they played the role of an important like, nucleus within the the revolutionary Nazi movement, like from the beginning. So it was an essential part of of how that whole um, how that whole system developed. So um, just I just wanted to throw that all out there and and ask if what your view on kind of political psychopathy is and how that's progressing and just any kind of thoughts in any direction you have on that? Yeah, I, I recently had, had turned that uh, the stuff, some of the stuff in that chapter, into a, a paper on Hermann Goring and how he was. Uh, I think I call him a dark triad personality because he was yep. Machiavellian and narcissistic and psychopathic at the same time. And you can, well, personally, I think narcissist, uh, Machiavellianism and psychopathy are probably the same thing, and that yep. the overlap is so great. It's just people from dis different disciplines using the different words to describe the same person. Narcissism is is quite different, really. But I think it, Hermann Goring was narcissistic as well as psychopathic. And if you look at his the pictures of him uh, with all his ribbons and bows and medals and his field marshal's baton, um, he clearly felt the need to be admired and loved which is sort of evidence of narcissism. Or worshipped. <laughs> yeah. And narcissism, I think, and uh, there's no real evidence for this, but I think it w once it, it's co-inhabits uh, co with psychopathy, it moderates the psychopathy. It makes it a little bit less because these guys want to be liked and want to be loved and want to be admired, even if it's just by their followers who may be a minority of people. But they still want to. They still want the adoration, and that yeah. stops them doing the more extreme things that they might have done um, otherwise. And I think that probably applies to one of your recent uh, presidents. Yeah. The <laughs> narcissism might have moderated the the more extreme things that right. he would have done if if mm -hmm. he wasn't narcissistic yeah. as as well as psychopathic. Yeah, 
Oh, that's very interesting. I'll just, I actually had that, um, that article, um, a, a quote from it. So that article that you're referencing that you wrote is Populism and Political Personality, What We Can Learn from the Dark Triad Personality of Hermann Goering. I'll just read a couple sentences yeah. from the abstract. So utilizing a case study of Hermann Goering's character and behavior, this paper examines the darkest personality within the dark triad of personalities, that of the psychopath, and discusses what can be expected from their leadership. The psychopathic leader's appeal to a large minority of voters is discussed alongside a discussion of whether they can be reliably identified, and if so, whether in the interests of global security and sustainability, psychopaths could be screened out of running for high political office. So I want to ask you about that last bit, because I, I don't think um, I don't think I read the, the paper. I don't think it was available when I was looking for it, but um, regardless, I haven't read it, so I don't know what you say on that. So what... Um, so can they be reliably identified? I think you've already answered the question, yes, because like you said, the three the three top guys at various points were actually diagnosed during their lifetimes. Um, but maybe in addition to that, what what limits might there be on that process, on that possibility? And then should there be some kind of screening? And what are the what are the prospects for that? Like what would what would we need to do in order to be able to implement something like that? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been arguing that there should be screening, uh, as have other people, uh, for well, ever since I started to understand what the psychopath was. Um, and, it, and I realize it, it raises all sorts of ethical issues. If if you screen them out before they've done anything wrong, then, you know, is, is that fair, etc. But I think with the most senior positions, especially in politics, where they have such a potential influence on life and death decisions for large groups of the population, um, it would seem sensible to, especially if they've got their hand on the nuclear trigger, it would seem sensible to try and uh, make sure they've got some kind of care for their fellow humanity, for their fellow humans. Um, otherwise, it's an invitation to uh, disastrous results. Um, yeah. And I should mention here that, that uh, recently there's been uh, a, a large uh, advancement in brain scanning technology for functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging and things like that. And there's there's uh, researchers like Kent Keel and uh, Fallon who are becoming expert at identifying the psychopathic brain. So maybe for these most senior positions, it shouldn't be just a self-report psychopathy measure together with an other report psychopathy measure, but it also should be a brain scan as well so that you've got three sources of triangulation. So if they sound like a psychopath, they look like a psychopath and they've got the brain of a psychopath, then let's assume that they are a psychopath and not allow them to run countries. Right. I think that's a, a really good um, point, actually, about using that objective evidence of a brain scan. Uh, a few months ago, we had Sandra Brown, the author, researcher, therapist, um, author of uh, Women Who Love Psychopaths, who was discussing her therapy um, with a lot of victims of, of psychopaths in relationships, a lot of women who had been devastated uh, psychologically and emotionally. And one of the things that Sandra said that 
uh, I found very interesting was that in helping her clients to understand the depth of the the problem, uh, they had she had actually presented to uh, the the women who were undergoing the therapy uh, brain scans. Yeah, neuroscience in general. Neuroscience, yeah. oh, and cool. and it, it it was those scans that objective. You know, in your hand. Well, just just not not scans of the of the men themselves, just the like educational yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yes, uh, just just as a kind of um, an example of what of of how different uh, a, a healthy brain scan might look from you know someone who is psychopathic, and she she said it had a profound effect on a lot of her clients. That that was the the kind of uh, thing that that helped the, the light go off in in the minds of many of these victims. And, um, and so I thought, you know, if, if that's what it takes in, in helping people to understand that there is this objective difference aside from the, the questionnaires and, and the, uh, that whole process, then, then maybe that is a way of implementing, uh, you know, greater education and, and screening for people. Uh, yeah. I mean, people have said the same stuff, uh, the same sort of thing when they've read my material, and they've said, all of a sudden, I understood what happened, and and, and it makes sense. And looking back on it, 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 you can tell it was nothing to do with me as a person. It was just the situation I was in, and it would have happened to anybody who was in that situation. Uh, but yeah, a lot right. of them are, I mean, we're sexually promiscuous and and have multiple affairs and and exploit women for all sorts of things, including their money, um, if they can get away with it. Um, and I think that happens in the workplace a lot more than, um, and I haven't really looked for it because um, it's so sensitive. Um, but uh, John Clark, in one of his books, uh, uh, Working with Monsters, I think it's called, the Australian psychologist, he said he, he found evidence of one guy who sort of slept his way through the whole of the female people in the department. And a lot of those women left and had various degrees of stress and post post traumatic stress um, syndrome because he, he promised them all sorts of things, and of course he was just using them. And as soon as he'd um, uh, finished with them, then he just left them and, and didn't fulfil any of his you know relationship promises or career promises or whatever other promises that he'd made. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it, it's one of the things that they tend to like to do, because it and it's related to this lack of emotional connectivity. It's just they're just seeking thrills to replace the emotions that they don't have. So they need extra strong stimulus to give them the same pleasure or an approximation of the pleasure that other people have from normal relationships. So. Going home to your wife and family isn't of any particularly appeal to them. They they want new conquests and new uh, adventures and new stimulation all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm well, talking about um, you know the, these groups, self health health groups. The, the people I feel quite often the most um, uh, sympathy for and or sadness over are the parents of some of the psychopaths 
as a parent, I don't know if you're guys, but I, I've got daughters. As a parent, you t- tend to think, you know, have I done a good job? Have I brought them up properly? And uh, are some of their quirks because of something that happened with me? But if you've got a, a psychopath as a child, it's, it's nothing to do with you. It's just uh, the way they're born and the, the characteristics of their brain. Uh, and the parents can't can't blame themselves, even though they do blame themselves. They can't fairly do so because there's nothing they could have done about it, um, given the the brain characteristics that they're faced with. <clears throat> and of course, uh, uh, as the psychopath child becomes more and more uh, um, abusive as they get older. Uh, it's it's very sad for the parents to watch what what's happening and, and not blame themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you? I'm wondering. That just made me think of the movie. Um, well, I haven't watched it yet, but um, what 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 do we do about Kevin? Is that the name of it? Um, I've just heard about it, but I'm wondering if just that that just made me think of other movies. Are there any? Are there any? films that stand out in your mind like fictional representations that you think do a good job of portraying a lot of these dynamics and and phenomena or or do you stay away from films well, I, yeah some people have asked me that before and the the, the shining example that i always think of is star wars now senator oh, palpatine yeah. becomes the uh, chancellor then he becomes the emperor and he's manipulating people. He kills his friends and supporters, uh-huh. just like Hitler did. Um, uh-huh. So he's, he, to me, he's the perfect political psychopath. Um, but nobody great. else <laughs> ever, ever seems to identify him. They, they talk about, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street and things like that. But to me, it, it's him. It's the emperor. Yeah, Clive, Clive, we did a whole show on that. Yeah, and, and, and Anakin's, yeah, and Anakin's kind of conversion. To the dark side yeah the, the so. manipulation that he does on on anakin in particular and just yeah i i think that palpatine like everyone says i, I mean i like darth vader darth vader's a great character but i think palpatine is the, is the greatest like villain um well one of the greatest film villains in 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 history so <laughs> yeah yeah oh I'll, I'll, I'll have to look at your podcast on that one <laughs> I'll, I'll try to find the link and send it to you <laughs> but um well I want to come back to to the, the the question of screening, and this kind of this applies also to what I said about or what I asked about corporate interventions. Um, like, is there? I know that that as a, like an academic and a researcher, it's it's your job to to think of ideas and write ideas, and not necessarily to implement them in a, like a real world way. But do you do you see that happening in any way do, or? Or do you have any ideas on how to actually make it happen? Like, is there, does it need political lobbying? Does it need just a wider public awareness um, of the, of, of these things, of these phenomena? And, and therefore, you know, our emphasis should be on public education. Like, um, do you have any, any kind of idea of what the practicalities of actually doing something about this would be actually implementing some kind of screening program? Just, yeah. Well, one thing I think you can do fairly easily is deliberately look for people who are caring and nurturing as as leaders. And then if you do that, it, it, you're not setting out to discriminate against psycho, psychopathic people, but you inevitably will find nice people instead of mean people. 
Um, and so that's a, a sort of a positive way of, of approaching the same thing. Without mm -hmm. deliberately screening them out, you're looking for their opposite. So you're looking for truly transformational leaders. So if you know the, the leadership literature, transformational leaders are, are deemed to be the best kind of leaders um, because they inspire people and motivate people and, and transform not only the you know the trajectory of the organizations they lead but also the people within those organizations and and you talking about transformational leaders has just reminded me so a, a recent piece of research we did looked at the characteristics of transformational leaders and psychopathic leaders as judged by those who work for those two groups of people so i asked people who had a transformational leader to rate them on a psychopathy scale. I didn't say it was a psychopathy scale, but I, I just asked them to rate them. Mm -hmm. And I asked people who had a psychopathic leader to rate them on the same scale. <clears throat> the most illuminating finding, which was very much in line with, with our theories around psychopaths, around corporate psychopaths, was that psychopathic leaders, when you first meet them, are even more poised, social, friendly, rational, uh, attractive, you know, psychologically attractive than transformational leaders are. And this is where I think where the big problem comes in, because it looks like you found an ideal leader, somebody who's going to be absolutely transformational. But unfortunately, those are the, those are the cluster, of, the only cluster of attributes that they actually have that look like they're going to be good. Everything else is negative about them. Um, and so we end up appointing these people based on their appearance and without um, adequate uh, background checks and reference checks and qualifications checks. And so they get away with it. So the shallow screening mechanisms that, or recruiting mechanisms that we use these days um, in organizational appointments are uh, not doing the job of, of weeding out the abusive and the tyrannical. Um, and that's, as I said, that's how, they're, that's how they're getting ahead. And I think they're getting ahead in greater numbers than ever before because we all move jobs so quickly these days. Now, mm -hmm. if you back in the 50s and 60s, the idea of a job for life was um, a reasonable expectation. And so you'd get to know your colleagues, you'd get to know the people you work with, and if you knew they had um, aberrant personalities, you might try and stop them from getting promoted above you um, because you knew what would happen if they did. But these days, we don't really know our colleagues that well. Uh, and if we do, it's only for two or three years. And so we don't know their true personalities until they're in a position to display those personalities. And sometimes that works well, and sometimes it works badly. So we have to be more thorough in our selection and recruitment decisions and, and the way we do things. Right. Do you think that there's any possibility or this might just be an entirely theoretical question because it might not, you know, probably corporations wouldn't choose to implement it, but at least theoretically, do you think that there, there could be a more um, like a, a revolution within the corporate world um, to democratize it and actually give the workers some say in, in like vetoing, um, their who their boss might be, you know, their, their you know their manager or something. Like, do you w is there any wisdom that could be gleaned from the 
from the workers who actually have to work under under a, a certain person. Like if if seventy percent of or if a hundred percent of the workforce says no, this manager is totally incompetent, totally inept. We ha they have to get rid of him. Like do do you th do you think that that should be taken into account more than it is? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, um, the the problem with these people, the these corporate psychopaths, is they are totally dedicated to upward impression management. So typically, those above them think they're absolute stars, and then yeah. unwilling to hear anybody below them saying negative things about them because they attribute it to to jealousy or to um, you know, being pushed too hard to work hard in the workplace, because um, mm -hmm. all they spend the whole time networking upwards uh, yeah. on their phone with their bosses, telling their bosses what great results they're getting, telling them how good they are, telling them how competent they are, and they're totally neglecting those below them. Uh, and, and this is basically Robert, one of Robert Hogan's arguments: a good leader takes care of those below them first and foremost. Whereas a bad leader takes care of those above them first and foremost, huh. uh, and therefore those above them don't really have a good reading of who's doing a good job in the organisation and who isn't. Um, if I've got my head down looking after the group of people that I manage, then nobody above me is going to notice me unless I make loads of noise, and it, it's the people who make noise and are self-promoting who get promoted. So yeah, uh, I very much think that's a good idea to ask people. If you could choose your boss from among your colleagues, who would you choose and who would yeah. you not choose? Uh, interesting. Okay. Well, I know you're running out of time, Clive, so I think we'll we'll end it there. I'll just end by saying that uh, that one of one of your recent papers that just came out uh, pretty recently is on kind of a, an analysis of the personality of Bernie Madoff. Is that correct? That's right. Uh -huh. So I'll include a link. I'll include a link to your um, to your university page, with, which has a list of you know, all your recent articles on it. Um, is there any, any, are there any other resources or places that you'd want to direct um, listeners or viewers? Well, I have a Google Scholar page, um, okay. which is a sort of a, a summary of your papers over mm -hmm. time. Uh, yep. So that's a good, a good place to start if you're interested in getting more information on, on corporate psychopaths. Um, all right, we'll do that. Okay. Yep. Great. Well, it was a, it was a pleasure talking with you, Clive. Um, Thank you for visiting with us today. Yeah. And take care. You're welcome. And, Thank you. And we'll, we'll talk again sometime. All right. Yeah. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Take care.